This week we have a, a, a lot to talk about uh, from our colleague, uh, Guy Rambo. He has a whole lineup of scoops to discuss. Last week we had the iTunes story, which was pretty big, that iTunes will continue to exist, but, but probably not be updated. And, and then there'll be individual apps for music podcast, uh, a new books app, and um, TV, as, as we know. Um, this week it, it, it's way more than just that. So we'll kick off with iOS 13. Um, Mayo, uh, give me the summary of, of what we now expect from iOS 13 uh, from Guy Rambo's findings on 905 Mac. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. Like, there's been a lot of anticipation for iOS 13. There's almost been a joke that like iOS 13 will fix everything that ever you know that ever yeah. anyone yeah. ever had a problem especially with. Especially on the iPad. Yeah. yeah, especially on the iPad because last year was kind of you know smooth sailing. They focused on performance, blah blah blah. There were all the features, so iPad focus features that are in development last year. They got pushed back to this year. So not only do we have uh, the stuff from last year to look forward to, assuming that it is you know coming to fruition, it also means that those features have had more time to kind of gestate internally. And when they come out, they should be higher quality, ideally. You know, not not just in terms of bugginess, but I mean in terms of like refinement and and finish. Mm-hmm. And Rambo's report certainly sets it off in the right direction. So we have the uh, dark mode confirmation. Obviously, this was reported uh, previously by. Bloomberg, but Rambo has backed it up, and it sounds like it will mirror the Mac experience, where in settings you just have an appearance option, and you can have the light appearance or the dark appearance, and they'll have a accessibility mode, which is high contrast, unsurprising because Apple loves support accessibility as well, but obviously the Mac has the high contrast modes too. I... Still, kind of hope for an automatic <laughs> dark mode option. Like Even on the Mac, it would make sense. Yeah, on the Mac, it's, it's 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 like it's the same as the Mac, which just means there's the same downfalls of the Mac. Yeah, there's, what I'm, we I'm, haven't I'm, been I'm, able I'm, to kind of ascertain I'm, yet is if it's the Mac dark mode moved across in terms of like the appearance theme, like because the Mac dark mode isn't true black, right? It's kind right. of like shades of grey. So, what will the iOS version like come out as? Yeah, and so I wrote a thing a few weeks ago that was like, you know, laying out the options of, of this is an example of where Apple uses kind of dark gray as their dark mode. And this is an example where they actually use true black, at least on OLED screens. Um, and, and they could always do one for OLED and one for LCD screens. Like it's possible that they could make that distinction. They know what the phone models are and, and also consider the iPad has no OLED. So you, you might really not want to do true black on the iPad. Um, and many third-party apps have that option where you, you can have light mode, dark mode, and if you had dark mode, then you get dark or black. You know, you, you've got the choice. Um, probably, I wouldn't imagine you'd have that level of like granularity from like the system setting. Um, surely, you would have the system be able to change modes based on like both ambient lighting or time of day based on like local sunset and sunrise, like you do uh, with like HomeKit automation. Um, and on the Mac, it's not built in, but there are there is like a third-party uh, yeah yeah there's a real there's a really good third-party app um do you remember the name of it it's it's uh, the, the I owl know what you mean i can't remember the name yeah the icon is an owl i'm looking in and uh my uh launch uh pad to see if i've got it installed i don't think i do right now but it's 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 pretty good and and it just lives in your menu bar and um this is one of those moments where if you know the answer, you can just scream it out and, and we, we won't hear you. But uh, <laughs> you can talk, you click and you can toggle between light and dark 
which which you can do in the system preferences, but it puts in the menu bar. Or you can say change it based on time of day, um, just like you can with like night shift on the Mac. I mean, it's almost there, but it's not quite. Um, and I think they might have even added a feature to like let you pick certain apps which people really want. And Apple's done that like on a few cases, at least with the Xcode, where you can say like have light mode except for this app. And I'm, I'm going to drop a bomb to Zach. They took that out. Oh really? Didn't yeah, you? Yeah, it was it was in every single Xcode beta, and then when ten point two actually came out, the the chat box was gone. Oh, well, clearly it's a feature for uh, for Mac OS ten point fifteen. Totally. Yeah. So, um, but but anyway, it's like, like the the best example I think. Um, there's a little bit of both an activity app, but and and the trailers app has a dark theme, but it's not true black, and like it's always like a dark theme. Um, but uh, Apple Books is is a really good example of like a true black UI. You don't get on a modern updated app. Like this isn't a yeah. vestige of you know the iOS seven era. The Books app is you know brand new today. Right, and and you get. I don't think you get control over it. No, think, it's, it's based on ambient light. Yeah, it's based on ambient light. So like you can't be outdoors. Usually, unless it's like really cloudy, and have have dark mode, like you know, where you're like struggling to read what's on the screen. But if you're inside and it's like not brightly lit, then all of a sudden, like it, it can be very dark. And there's control over like what a book looks like, like you can toggle that manually um, and have like an auto switch for it. But like just like the now playing, I, I spend my time with audiobooks, and it's like the now playing UI for the audiobook player. You don't have a toggle for that as far as I know, and so it's based on just ambient light. And it looks to me really good. So I, I wouldn't mind, like, I guess my pick would be, like, true black on OLED, dark on LCD, um, and then give you as much control as, like, as you want, which is more than on the Mac, um, and consider ambient light. Like, the default can be whatever. I, I don't care what it is. But as long as you've got the option to, like, go ahead and change it, I think it'd be great. So I'm excited for it. Uh, yeah, I do wonder, the, like... The, the Bloomberg report previously um, described it as a dark mode for nighttime reading and stuff to reduce glare, which to me, you know, strongly implies automatic switching as well, mm. because, you know, going, because think of how much effort it is to go into settings to change, to change that, set, to change well, the option. Yeah. Or it's even so control, much work. Or even control center, like just having to manage it is not ideal. Even if they put yeah. it as like a button under the brightness slider where you like deep press or long press. Um, one other curiosity I have is like, if an app is currently dark themed, like, uh, Will that have an option to be light themed? Like all of a sudden, will you have the activity app have a light theme? And do you pick like is like light mode what it is today? And then like dark mode is like everything goes dark if it supports it. Because um, I mean, like even on the Mac, like Pixelmator, a third party app, was always dark themed. And then when they adopted dark mode, they incl- <laughs> included a light theme, which to me looks really funny. Um, but yeah, because on the Mac, the control, the way that like the framework works is you just you know, lay out the controls and then the controls natively support light and dark appearances. So the amount of effort that's needed to support both once you're supporting dark mode is is essentially zero mm-hmm. because it just kind of adapts all over the place. And, you know, custom controls are different, but essentially on the Mac, there is so much usage of just the, the, the app kit control set, like yeah. everywhere, their buttons and stuff. It becomes, you know, almost for free. On iOS, the trend is very much away from that. Like, the the UI framework includes less controls by default, so developers have to implement their own. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the one that a lot of the uh, UI kit official controls just kind of look ugly in current you know design parlance. They just don't look very nice. So everyone does their own anyway. And so it's actually going to be more work from a developer's part to you know add in the new appearance stuff, and it, it will be less free compared to what it was for the on the macOS side. Um, 
you know, in an ideal world, Apple would also complement iOS 13 with a you know a more robust UIKit framework with more controls and stuff. But you know, at the moment, with the status quo as it is, if they just add like so the app can see whether it should be light or it should be dark, all you're going to get is the convenience of bringing that setting to an app level. It'll still be you know the same amount of work, which is quite a lot of work to implement you know dual themes on every single app individually. Yeah, this is a weird mix right now too of 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 light and dark on iOS as it currently is designed. Like the now playing widget is dark. They do not disturb alert banner <laughs> that needs to go on is dark. Um, but then like other elements are not like alert banners are not dark. Um, but and- the, 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 um, the, the banner on the lock screen is a good example though, where it's, that is dark, but it's not, you know, it's dark to indicate something. Yeah. Right. Like you would, it, you, it, would it, you would do, um, like no, no, uh, or low contrast mode to have it be like flat dark where it's like dark, dark and not like translucent dark, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or in dark mode, that is highlighted in a different color. Just and then the normal bubbles are dark rather than mm-hmm. gray. Like yeah. there's a lot of complexity. It's it's not as simple as you know just inverting the colors. Right. And I think the books app is a really good starting point for you know where they could roll it out. But what I'm worried is that they won't make it like the Mac where it's standardized. You know this is what the theme looks like. It will be more like your app should display in dark mode now. Go and theme it however you want. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's going to be more kind of you know, every app for itself, which kind of goes back to what you're saying about how some apps now are light and dark anyway. Like yeah. even the Apple's dark apps aren't the same. Like they implement in different ways. And at least on the what we know at the moment, it seems like that's going to continue. And, you know, I'm not super overwhelmed with that because it, it, it then it then opens opportunities for stuff to look bad in some cases. And, like, and then you come to, should you have app level control? Because I like how dark mode looks in, you know, these three apps, but in in messages it looks horrible for instance like and then you do, then you have to like always revert back to one or the other and it becomes really complicated because yeah. the the whole true black you know versus non-true black thing i don't mind which approach you go with but you can make both ones look bad if you, like the the apple books app uses you know a true black background when you're in like the main chrome but like the tab bar is dark gray mm-hmm. and then you have these gradients or that are shades of gray and it's a nice balance but you can definitely go you know too far in one direction or the other yeah, yeah. I know everyone uh, hates Facebook now, but the Messenger app has a really good dark mode that, that at first you had to send a like, crescent moon emoji to unlock, and now it's a toggle for everybody. But the way it looks looks really good. Like if messen- messages looks such like that, like it looks really good to me. Um, and, and like Spotify, Beats Music, they've had dark, like their, their themes are dark because <laughs> like media apps. Um, and like that's one of the complaints about Alpha Music is that then you're forced with like the light mode theme. Um, I think you also the Sonos Player app is is a dark theme, like it's typical in, in media apps. Um, so I'm I'm excited for this. I think a lot of people are very excited for it. Um, I do wish that you know the, <laughs> there's this trend that we hate of the white background icons, um, mm. and there, there is support on iOS for multiple icons. Um, I would there are a few apps at least on the Mac. Uh, and on iOS, I think that will that will match the icon to the mode that you use. Like the one app I'm thinking of is IA Writer. Um, it'll it'll change at least in the Mac, and I think on iOS as well. The icon that you use, you, there's an option you can say like use this icon or that icon, or match it to the mode that I'm in. Um, and so then you can say like if you're using the dark mode IA Writer, you can have the dark mode IA Writer icon, and the white background changes to the black background. Um, it's like that, that's a level of thought that maybe we won't get at first, but like maybe we'll get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Mm-hmm. And dark mode is definitely one of those things which is always on the top of people's wish list, you know, in the YouTube concepts that happen yes. every single year. So yeah. it'll be nice to finally, you know, satisfy that user base. Yeah. Another and, thing on that kind yeah. of, 
vein is the volume like uh, indicator where you change the volume and that you know panel comes up over the top. Mm-hmm. And before iOS 7, that would be translucent because it would be like black, um, 50% opacity. And then yeah. when iOS 7 came along, they made it fully opaque but blurred. Yeah. And that you know means you can't see what you're doing behind it and normally you're changing you're changing volume while you're watching a video so you can't see the center of the video and so that's been a you know almost a meme now for you know 10 years and that's also something <laughs> yeah. that Rambo says will be addressed yeah that same like they instead of like changing the volume hud they, they moved it to the mac too so like it's also on the mac which i mean it fits it fits it's better there because you're less likely to have like something in front of it but on the iphone it's like it's big and, and silly sometimes yeah i actually have a contribution to the volume hud situation so oh, is that right? i believe it will look like uh if you've ever used apollo the reddit app mm-hmm. where the, the volume goes to the left notch yeah, essentially Instagram does that too. You wouldn't yeah. know, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't use Instagram, but Apollo does it. Yeah. And so they for they have to implement that as a custom thing, but this would then become system wide on phones that obviously have notches and it would just flick up in the top left corner replacing the time temporarily. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's like the video players, they've got sometimes like or maybe like it's a custom thing that some apps do, but like a little a pill shape indicator um in the top like one of the one of the corners and that's what changes not like in the yeah and like even screen. apple's official video player mm-hmm. it, it it will usually suppress the volume hud and just change the slider you know yeah. in the chrome like or not come up with a hud but there's still plenty of opportunities plenty of times just when you're using the phone when you know the, the hud panel comes up when you don't want it to so moving it to the notch will again please a lot of people even though you know it appears on the screen for like a second so isn't i think the uh the, the wishes for that being redesigned have kind of been overblown a bit, but it will definitely make people happy. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an obvious comical, like, ha-ha, mm. that's yeah. bad, bad design, <laughs> you know, to be fixed. Um, yeah, how they tell you to the Mac, who knows? Because obviously... Yeah. It, well, <laughs> it'll probably take another year to change it on the Mac. <laughs> um, one, one more thing on dark mode before we get away from that too far is uh, one of the effects of having iOS apps support dark mode at a system level is that when you base your Mac app on your iOS apps, your iPad apps design, like say the home app, for example, dark mode has no effect. Like it changes some Chrome or it can change some Chrome. Um, and, and the home apps case, like it's not the Chrome that gets affected really. So like you, you, you can use dark mode and see its effects in like the news app and the stocks app, I, I think, but yeah. um, probably voice memo unless it's always dark, but the home app has all those iOS style like tiles, like control center, and they don't change to dark mode at all. And you can change the app's wallpaper uh, to be like a dark theme, like like a grayscale background or something. Um, and that can kind of help, but it's still a very bright app in dark mode because it's, it's based on iOS and there's no iOS dark mode yet. So um, part of the report is that dark mode will impact marzipan apps that <laughs> in, in that way. Like it'll, yeah, it'll... and it's so funny with like um, stocks because stocks on the Mac can be light or dark depending on your system theme. Mm-hmm. But then stocks on iPad is white and then stocks on the phone is black. <laughs> yes. So it'll be, it'll be nice if they can unify that around yeah. finally. Yeah. And actually with all of this stuff, you have to keep in mind like how does this affect the phone? How does this affect the iPad, especially in like the iPad focused year? And then how do all those iPad features then map into you know, the marzipan experience on the Mac as well. And that definitely uh, comes to the fore with the, you know, multi-windowing stuff. And mm-hmm. we'd heard about the idea of uh, being able to have more than one instance of the app open simultaneously on, on the iPad. So you would be able to have, like, uh, pages open with one document and then also in your multitasking, which I have pages open with a second document. 
and do split view on those, similar to what Safari can do, but it again implements it in a custom way. The way it has like two windows side by side, but as soon as you go home, it's lost and they don't appear as separate tiles either. Mm-hmm. But, and so they're going to take that, you know, system wide and allow them to be separate tiles and, you know, float alongside each other without each individual app having to implement some weird split view thing on their own. And then what I really like in Rambo's report is this uh, announcement that it will also, they will also kind of be upgrading the, the, the classic iPad interface element, the popover, with like a detachable panel concept. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, show the popover, but then as well as just, you know, sticking to the the button where it came from, which you tapped on, you could drag it away and like the arrow would detach and then you could move it all the way around the screen and then you could bring up more panels and then stack them on top of the other ones. So you you keep some kind of organization and you could flick between the panels to move one to the front, move one to the back and then flick them off to the side, kind of like with a... uh, picture-in-picture video mm-hmm. where you can be on screen and it you know snaps at the corners or you can snap it off screen so you get that only like that thin so it's border. still active but it's out of your sight but you can pull it back in if you want to see it again yeah exactly so like that but as a system level interface behavior which means it will become standardized and you know that you 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 like instinctively learn that you can do this right yeah. is Obviously, the current popover ui like like the kind that I work is heavy on. I think Pixelmator for iOS is heavy on. Is that standard? Like you can do that easily, or is that custom in all the apps? Right. So the popover where it just looks like an arrow, you know, like the tiny little arrow, and then plus a box, right? Plus a box, yeah, rounded rectangle box. That is a standard component and was introduced with the first iPad, actually. Hmm. Obviously, with a different design back in those days. But yeah. that, the the popover was like the one big addition to UIKit when the iPad came out. Originally, like, oh, we've got a bigger screen now, and we don't need to take you to a whole new screen, so we can show you this on top of what's behind it. Without- yeah, and, and the cla- the classic demo was in Mail when you're in Portrait, you can press the you know the Mail the Mail the uh, inbox button, and it would show the list of messages in the popover window instead of having to shift the whole screen to make it full screen. Yeah. That is standardized. So you could see that very easily having like a a checkbox option, let this be detachable so it doesn't just stay in one place and you can drag it around the screen. And the Mac popover uh, system actually already has this option. So in like Mac Calendar, if you bring up a calendar event, it, it shows as a popover, but you can drag it around and it detaches automatically. And again, that's system behavior. So it's just bringing, you know, something that they perfected on the Mac to the to the iPad finally. But plus adding on the kind of, you know, picture-in-picture kind of gestural direct interaction, stacking them together. I think that's really, really cool and, you know, makes stuff a lot more powerful. Yeah, there's a funny thing on the Mac where I think if you're downloading large files in Safari, you get the downloads uh, pop-up. Like, it's, it's the same style. And you can mm-hmm. drag it off and, like, watch your progress. And in iTunes... It's the same UI, but you can't drag it and like watch your progress, even though you're probably more likely to have like large files uploading in iTunes and maybe Safari. Um, so I, I guess that's like a standard thing, but they're not using the standard one there in iTunes. Or they yeah, and, and, the and Rambo's report doesn't kind of uh, say this explicitly, but I imagine if you had like a split view of two apps, like Mail and Safari, for instance, mm-hmm. and then you open the inbox popover in Mail, you could detach the mail popover and then drag it so it's resting over the Safari window. Does that make sense? So it's yeah, not it like does, confined yeah. to the rectangle. Let, and like that gives you a lot more flexibility. App. And, you know, when you're actually trying to do work on the iPad, more than one thing on the screen at a time, but you don't want to like, 
always have to keep tapping the button just to show the inbox and make it go away. You could just kind of put it off to the side. You could flick it all the way off if you want to, or just leave it floating over Safari where you're focusing on mail. Oh, you want to look at your Safari window again? You can just drag it back and then move around. Like I don't think they'll let you um, spawn these popovers so they survive Like when you press the home button. I think the popovers will still be contained to, you know, you have to have the main and, app and on screen. It probably won't be relevant in that case, too. Like, it's it's a sub-menu within an app that you're in. And so if you leave the app, then you probably don't need, like, the sub-menu. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because, like, if you put the the mail inbox popover to the home screen, it'd be pointless because you click a different message, but you wouldn't be able to see anything else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, unlike the Mac where, you know, the, the panels kind of live on their own sometimes, yeah. it would still be, like, contained as, you know, this is owned by the app and when you close the app the panels go too but in like a split view concept both apps are open so the panels right. can be freeform around yeah. that that and i, I kind of and this is like progress towards a more mac like experience on the ipad in terms of like how windowing works and everything but we're still not at the point where you can run mo- like more than two to three apps on screen at the same time with multiple windows like we're getting closer with like the ability to have you know as remembered instances of one app and two windows on the same screen um and you know, an app can have, you know, we, we believe now floating panels of submenus that you can move around the screen, but we're still not even close to the, the point where you can have like, say five apps of different sizes on your iPad screen running around, like, you know, iPhone sized apps. Like you, I mean, you can get pretty close to that on the Mac, even, even with like a limited space, you know, um, but you, you can't do that yet on iPad. And like, so I kind of see this as like baby steps still. Uh, and, and, and it is something that it's like the first sign of progress since the iPad is introduced, like how panels work on, on the iPad. Um, I, but I don't think that we're yet at like the point of every year the iPad is going to get something that it should have had on like year two, three, and four. Um, and, it, and it's, it's not windowing as we know it on the Mac yet. It's still like baby steps of advancing what would already exist there but but yeah and i don't think we you know we, we might not ever get like mac style windowing because you know, that has problems of its own it just kind of you know lived out its own heritage and not necessarily the best way to do things but i think everyone can agree that at some point the ipad needs to be able to show three apps on screen at once rather than two for instance so mm. there's definitely more you know there's always more to do and the jumps we're getting in 13 are definitely going to be good based on you know the reporting but there's a long way to go it's just always you know, eating away at more and more percentage of, you know, pain points. Mm-hmm. It's always pulling, you know, pulling it back. Yeah. The other thing is the report mentions is the, um, it's, uh, the shake to undo gesture. Like whenever you type in text, um, you can shake your iPhone or iPad physically to undo the text. Um, and that's in place of having like persistent undo and redo buttons or like on a keyboard command Z or so, or, or whatever it is, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Um, so they they rely on the on the physical gesture and using the accelerometer to say, oh, you want to undo something, and it's clever because it's like ah, you know, shake it, go back. Uh, but it's hidden for one, and when you're you know shaking your your 13 inch iPad to, to like undo it, you know, it's like almost not worth it. <laughs> you should just like manually undo what you did. Um, yeah, shake to undo was made for the phone. Like, yeah, it was made for the phone, and, and and the phone was three and a half inches at the time. It's gotten much bigger now. Um, keep and, and they have tried to um, rectify a little on the iPad, like with iOS 11, the toolbar yeah. that has undo and redo buttons on it. Mm-hmm. And but, you, you had a version of the, the plus-size keyboard and landscape on the phones that had like toolbar controls, but they removed those because they were like targets that you had to try and avoid when you were typing. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> that was a weird. They had really weird icons as well. It was like yes. very like clip Yes. Yeah. So they've added like you know the arrows to the iPad toolbar. So you can you know sort of do it, but obviously if the keyboard's dismissed, it's not showing up, and it's still you know focused on text input alone. You know the keyboard is a keyboard action when really you kind of want like. You know, you want vocabulary that can spread between operations. Like, one really cool thing in mail that very few people know is if you move a mail message to a different folder and you then decide you don't want to, you don't have to go back into the other inbox to then move it back. You can shake and undo and it will yeah. bring it back. Yeah. There's like, so, and, and that stuff, you know, nobody in the real world thinks to do any of that stuff because right. it's just not, you know, visible enough. And if they can bring this kind of... They, uh, Rambo says it's a three-finger tap and slide gesture. On, on a keyboard. So it's tech-specific. So in the mail example, it sounds like it wouldn't work. I, I, like... I actually spoke to Rambo in private chat about mm. this to try and eke into it a bit more because it did mm. sound weird to me. Like, why are they doing it tech-specific when they already had the buttons? Mm-hmm. He he said it's the only application of the gesture that he can find at, at the moment. Yeah, But that doesn't mean it will be the keyboard only. It might be like we the, the system vends this gesture... And you and an app can choose to do it for more than just the thing, but by default it will be implemented. So could be could be mail, could be uh, an image editor where you like you apply an effect or you like paste in an image. Uh, any like on the on the Mac, I think like the 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 mouse and pointer way of doing it would be like go to the menu bar, go to edit, and like click undo typing or undo paste or whatever, or Command Z if you want to do it with a keyboard shortcut, and then like the to redo, which is also a thing, is Shift Command Z, and there's an L, there, there's not really a, a redo on iOS. Like you can't like shake harder or, or like shake upside down. Um, it does have redo. Oh, well, you get like a pop up, right? So it's like undo or redo if if you go far, far enough back. Like if you undo, then you could redo if you wanted to. Yes. Okay. So if you shake, like you shake it, you get undo. If you shake again, then you get redo because you get like one step back or one step forward. And it sounds like from what Rambo's writing, there will also be like a tap with three fingers like maybe three fingers down and like shift to the right or left and then that becomes your undo or redo maybe it was a little bit unclear in the report but that was kind of my interpretation yeah i think it's kind of like you can undo more than one step and Mm. with the same gesture you know like by like it's kind of like going on along the timeline so if you slide to the left you're undoing 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 and then you stop and then if you go back to the right you're redoing 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 Mm -hmm. whereas obviously with shake to undo if you want to undo two things you know, you have to shake your phone, press undo, shake your phone again, press undo. Whereas, yeah. you know, with a gesture, it can be more, you know, continuous rather than like separate individual things repeated. Yeah. And again, just to remind everyone, like, this is, these are features that we anticipate in the context of iOS 13 based on what Key Rambo has found um, and reported and, and like, through sourcing and everything. So it isn't announced, it isn't official yet, but it, it, these, these are some of like, the core things that we expect to come to iOS 13 when it's announced in June. So, yeah. And this um, stuff is in development, like based on. Like Rambo's talked to me about how he he's found this stuff, and mm-hmm. I think it's there's definitely in development, but obviously they can decide not to announce stuff and pull stuff out. They, like, they can announce things and then not actually release them, so they can definitely work on things and then not announce them. <laughs> level back. Um, uh, one other thing I want to yeah. I want to highlight is again talking about the iPad. Everyone always complains about the Safari uh, browser being like a like a mobile version on the on the iPad compared to what you can use on a Mac. Yeah. And it's not really true because the Mac renderer, the the same Safari uses the same WebKit renderer on iPad and the desktop, so it is basically as capable. There are a few edge cases, but it can technically render every single website the same. But what happens is, is that most websites still naively see it as iOS and assume phone, and they give it a phone design. And 
then it feels bad because you've got this massive screen and it's you know doing the phone experience. And Apple added request desktop site, which kind of gets around this in some cases. It doesn't work universally, but you know some some websites like YouTube, it definitely changes what you're seeing. But what uh, you have to do that every single time. Yes. And what Rambo found here is kind of like an automatic request desktop site. So it would be more intelligent about presenting itself to a website, you know, not as a phone. So, so it cannot be confused as a phone in more cases. So you get, you know, a better feeling of it being, you know, desktop browsing. Yeah, there's, uh, you, 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 did a, you did a post a long time ago that was like all the things that you can long press on in iOS to, to mm-hmm. reveal. Like one thing is like in Safari, you can long press to request a desktop site or you can do it through the share action button and you got to go through and pick the icon. Um, and, and so that, that's a thing. Uh, and then in some, in some modes, like where you're like reading an article, um, you know, say on the F5 Mac, you can, if you're in the article, you can go into reader mode, which is like you, you maybe we don't support it on the F5 Mac, but it's, it's a, it's a nice feature where you can see just the text and images of an article and, and it'll strip out a lot of like the, the Chrome around the website. And so it's just like yeah, it generally works on um, 95 Mac, like articles when you click through, but it doesn't like work on the homepage. And that's, that's kind of controlled by the, the browser, like Safari has to detect this is the article content. Let's show the reader button for instance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think there you can do some pretty cool things like always use reader mode on this site. Uh, the tricky thing there is that then you're like, you lose navigation, like, you, you've got to kind of rely on like swiping backwards to the homepage and to get like where you want to go and you can't like click through to more stuff. So um, it can be tricky, um, but something like that where like if you're on a site and then you always use reader mode, they give you the option to always use reader mode. And so that same thing on, on iOS would be like, if you always request a desktop site, then just like force that setting. It makes so much sense. And yeah, there's a claimed email from someone to Craig Federighi where he seemed to, uh, take on the question of why isn't YouTube working the right way on the iPad? It's this big 13 inch screen and it keeps showing me this phone version of the, of the website and I always have to change it. And I think the way he put it was like, well, we, we share what the device is. So YouTube should know that it's not just iOS. It is also a screen size of this, you know, uh, and they, they, they can make the decision based on the operating system, even though they don't, they don't have to. And so the email kind of said like Google's fault. Um, but in this case, if they've got the power to fix that, then then why not? So Yeah, you almost have – basically, the request desktop site re- stops reporting it as an iPad and reports more of a Mac. You know, this is a Mac device with mm-hmm. this screen resolution and stuff to try and stop people. Basically, the iPad the iPad tells the website everything it needs to provide a, you know, a very iPad-specific layout, but yeah. most of them just do it lazily and go, oh, it's iOS, so it's a phone. Right. So, so basically, request desktop site overrides the default um, like context and mm-hmm. pretends to be something that it isn't to, mm-hmm. to make the website behave better, essentially, yeah, yeah. which is why it works on some websites and not others. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, is about how font management it works. So on, on the Mac, there's literally an app called Fontbook, uh, <laughs> unless they change like fonts or something, but you've got Fontbook, and you can go there and like install fonts that you get from the web or wherever, and then they're they're available throughout your system as as options to use, like in a text editor or something, um, or like a graphics app. Um, you don't really have that on iOS, but there is a process for installing fonts, isn't there? Uh, and yeah, then, on an app by app basis. Yeah, and so that's going to change in iOS 13 from what we, what we believe now. Yeah, so. In iOS today, an app can support installing a custom font. And if you're a enterprise deployment, you can get like one of those special profiles. You know, like the iOS beta profile? Yes. You can get a, an enterprise profile that includes a font. Like, it's a bit random, but you can do it. 
So that that that's the current status quo. It's either you use an enterprise profile or on an app by app basis you install these fonts. What they're going to do in thirteen is a much more holistic approach, which makes fonts basically a pain in settings. So you can manage all of the fonts installed on your iPad and phone, and then download more, install more, and then every single app can draw on that that font library rather than having this kind of you know piece together jigsaw puzzle of every app's doing same thing. Mm-hmm. And that will also include providing a system standard font picker. So there should be consistency in how each app lets you pick which font you want to use and you know to write to, to, to type with at that time. Because mm-hmm. as it stands today, like Pages implements fonts in one way, and then every other app has to either copy what Pages does or make their own in different regards. So this should hopefully step both standardize and you know support more than one you know more fonts than just what are installed normally. We've all read some surprising online reviews, right? Whether you're trying to get a sweet deal on something you've been saving for or trying to find the best happy hour in town, it's generally a good idea to read the reviews first. So why would finding the right software for your business be any different? Read thousands of real software reviews and find the right software for your business at captera.com slash happy hour. Not familiar with Captera? Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 750,000 reviews of products from real software users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 specific categories of software, everything from project management to email marketing to yoga studio management software. No matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution and fast. Not sure where to start with Captera? Simply go to captera.com slash happy hour and type in a category like podcast or banking just to see how Captera works. Results are easy to read with clear summaries of each recommendation, and it's totally free to explore. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com slash happy hour for free today to find the right tools to make an informed decision for your business. captera.com slash happy hour. Captera. That's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash happy hour. Captera, software selection simplified. All right, the next uh, couple of stories uh, first deals with macOS 10.15. And uh, so give me a recap of, of some things that Rambo has reported that we now expect in macOS 10.15. Yeah, so obviously we had the media apps, Marzipan stuff last week. And then this week, uh, Rambo is reporting on a new feature which is codenamed Sidecar. And essentially, it is an expansion of window management on the Mac. And specifically in this case, it allows you to move a window very easily to another display, but also to a connected iPad. Mm -hmm. So essentially, your iPad becomes an external display when you're when on your Mac, you say, put this window over there. Yeah, at least for for a single app it does. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be like, you know, like a freeform second display. Oh, here's a second desktop. I think it's going to be you put this app on the iPad. It because takes an element of screen. an element of this is that you can use other displays for the Mac. Like it seems like like just like not just iPads, but like other displays, and that there'll be some change to how that works too. And you can already just plug up a display to your Mac and have it as like a second display, or you can full screen an app on the second display, but it sounds like this would be like a new a new option within the the, the like toolbar of of the, of the window 
where you can say like, I want to full screen this app, but not on my desktop. I want it to go over here, this other desktop, you know, screen, monitor, or a nearby an active iPad. Um, and it sounds it's like some, it's like a sense of like how full screen apps work and secondary displays work and how AirPlay works. So it's like, you can treat an Apple TV as like a second display. Um, yeah. And in that case, I think it's like a full like mm-hmm. a full running display just wirelessly. And and this sounds like it'll probably be like you kind of airplay an app over to an iPad and like on an app by app basis in full screen mode. Yeah, cuz it's still interesting. Oh yeah, I think it's I think it's clever and like the name sidecar kind of implies that oh it's, you know, complementary. You're using your truck, your Mac and then you want to put something you want to put some reference article like you you found this article in Safari and you just want to put it on your iPad while you uh, go for it and you know you put it on your complimentary ipad or you're working on uh like a pixelmator project and you want to go for lunch but you want to show your co-workers what you were doing you just send that to the ipad and then walk off and then come back and carry on and maybe you know you zoom it back up to the mac or you just edit a little bit on the ipad or like it's it's kind of like an ad hoc send make this window not on my Mac screen. Let me, you know, manipulate it with my fingers. Yeah, and, there, and there's things that you can do. There's no touch on the Mac. Like that's a stubbornly been a thing that they've not done. Um, and there is touch on iOS. It's, it's the foundation of, of interacting with iOS. Uh, and you do have pencil support on on, on a lot of iPads now. Um, so there, there would be times where you would, you know, like I, I remember some of my earliest computer memories are like uh, in the 90s of of doing uh, MS Paint on on Windows, Microsoft Paint. <laughs> <laughs> and like that was, you know, as like a, a a young child, it's like that's the the best way to like get familiar with the system is like start out with like being creative in this like drawing really basic drawing app, and then like go explore from there. Um, and so you can see like like you can imagine like uh, doing something similar like with the iPad on a Mac, like you're you're in a Mac app, but you're drawing on the iPad with the pencil, uh, and it's like all one system, you know. And it's it's a it's a nice idea, and I think this is kind of rumored like a few years ago. Like there was like a Mark Gurman report that mentioned uh, extending the iPad's utility from the Mac by using the iPad as, as an input device. So like the idea yeah, he, of, like, he at the time he compared it to like making the iPad a, a Wacom tablet essentially. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can definitely see the parallels to what Rambo's reporting. This right, week. and and they've had continuity features where you can you know do work on one device and bring it to the other, and by proximity you can see that you're, you're nearby. You can like click a click an app icon on on your dock or or somewhere, and and it's easily accessible to to keep working somewhere else. And that also includes like the keyboard or, or universal clipboard between devices. Like those are all nice features. This kind of fits into that camp, I think. I think it's like your, your family of Apple devices they work well together in in, in a unique way. So. It's it's a cool cool rumor, I, I, and it's interesting that this was so far back, but it says like now it might actually ship. So, yeah, and oh, as much as you know, we I hate Marspan apps on the Mac. <laughs> yes, if you if you zoom it over to the iPad screen, it'll basically be an iPad app, although you know probably still have some lag because it's not running natively. It's like zooming the video, but at least in terms of you know finger metrics and sizing, it should you know sing on the ipad screen if you're flicking over news or any of the other upcoming marzipan applications so there's definitely uh, like a symbiotic relationship there where it's it's interesting like the thing i always i think i'm like thinking of is it's a way of whilst the ios 13 makes the ipad like a better productivity device on its own it's also a way of you know, if you're a Mac user, you can get extra benefit by having an iPad. Even if you're doing most of your work on the Mac, you can 
bring the iPad into your workflow a bit more. Like mm-hmm. right now, you know, iPad enthusiasts are kind of you know doing this with third party apps and the experience isn't perfect because you always have to rearrange the desktops and stuff. Whereas this is like a very streamlined Apple kind of feature where it's like we can help people interact with the specific app in a different way. We don't want to bring the Chrome. We don't have to worry about bringing like the, the whole menu bar and the dock and everything over and worry about the desktop on the iPad and, you know, all of that weird mirroring. We can just focus, put one app full screen on the iPad. It's kind of ad hoc. Like you can just use it and go, it'll go away and it'll go back to, and it'll just zoom back to where it was on the Mac window originally. And you can just jump in and out. You can use it occasionally or you can use it, you know, more systematically like I'm, I'm kind of thinking there's there's a like say if i was working on a pages document and then i actually wanted to read the document well i could read it on my laptop screen or i could just shoot it to my ipad screen and just chill out there for a bit and then shoot it back and carry on editing it like it's it's kind of like a complementary like second display sort of arrangement and I think Apple knows that most people that have Macs have iPads as well. So it's just kind of extending that. It reminds me a lot of the continuity camera feature they added mm-hmm. last year, which is like you don't use it often, but it can occasionally come in handy when you're scanning something. Like, Yeah, I was, I was going to mention that too, because it's, it's also there are a million ways to do the same thing on, on so many things on the Mac and iOS, where with continuity camera, that's a good example, because you could already like take a picture on your iPhone or iPad and like airdrop it really quickly to the Mac and like put it where you want it to go. Or use iCloud Photos and like take a picture and like within seconds it syncs to the Mac, so you drag out of photos and you put it there. And what they they do with continuity camera is if you're in the pages document, for example, on the Mac, you you know secondary click and you get a sub menu and you say insert photo or video or whatever, and then you you know from iPhone and then you pick up your iPhone and like it's already on the camera. Like it's not necessary, but it takes away a few steps. <laughs> and if you know what the feature, then it's there and you're like more efficient for it. Uh, and and you probably don't rely on it all the time, like you know. But but it is a nice feature, and so this is similar to that. It's like there are other ways you can already do this, um, but this this makes it part of the system. And maybe it's more limited than other solutions. Maybe it has features that other solutions can't have. Um, but it, it's in that same theme of like making all the devices work together, um, you know, neatly. Yeah, and I think a good example, like say, even for apps that have iPad versions. Sometimes you just want to be using like the full experience on the Mac, but you just want to refine something or you want to like consume something differently and then just relax for a bit. Like if you're doing a blog post, right? I write a blog post in Safari on the Mac. It comes to lunchtime. I want to grab some lunch, but you know, I might want to read, I might want to copy edit my post while I'm eating lunch. So I just press one button, zoom it to my iPad screen, go into the kitchen, leave my Mac at the desk, you know chill out on the iPad reading my article that I've just written while I'm making my food, and then maybe I do an edit or two, and then I come back to the Mac, and it just restores the state straight back to the the Mac screen I can carry on. Like, it's one of those, you know, interjecting conveniences. And if if there are certain apps where you really find, like, you want to be, oh, uh, you want to do Mac plus iPad full-time, then you can invest in buying, like, iPad stands and stuff and, you know, really go full throttle with it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a cool feature. And it's certainly something that, like, like a Windows computer. Like, it's definitely taking advantage of the ecosystem impact, yeah. right? Yeah, something that, that's kind of missing from all of this is that whenever you do remote solutions from the Mac to the iPad, um, like, if you're using a, a great app like Screens, you can remotely control what's happening on your Mac, but you, even if you're doing, like, Mac-to-Mac communication, you can't hear what, the, like, you can't, like, play audio from 
the remote Mac and hear it on on your Mac or iPhone or iPad. It's it's all visual and it's not audio. Um, and there's no evidence that like this will include audio <laughs> as well. Um, but if Apple ever takes it to that level where then you've got access to like the I- iPads, cameras, and speakers, and the source Mac's like you know audio output. Um, then that, you know, that's kind of like what continuity camera is, at least like you've got access to the remote camera on the Mac, you know, if they're nearby, um, if they did the same thing with audio, like you can play something from the Mac and it comes to the iPad speakers, um, you know, that, that'd be something that you just don't get yet from other solutions, you know, or, or say another Mac speaker. So, um, mm-hmm. you don't have that yet. So it, there's, there's room for things that Apple could do here that, that others haven't done or just can't do for the limitations. And then the other change is is about what like window management basically like arrangement. Yeah, window snapping. So mm. on the app, on on Windows, if you drag like on on Windows, Windows, Microsoft Windows. Yes. If you drag a window to the side of the screen, it kind of shows an outline of fifty percent of that window in like a line. And if you let go, it will just resize the window to fill half the screen on that side of the screen. If you drag it to the top, it does the same. You know, quarter on the top. If you drag it to the bottom, it does the same corner on the bottom. If you drag it to the corner, it does like the rectangle in the bottom right-hand corner. The Mac has nothing that does that. They have split view, which is, but that, to do that, you're going to the separate context of having two full-screen apps in a split view. Mm-hmm. But if you just want to quickly resize, you know, a window on your desktop to be a skinny column on the right, you have to, you know, manually drag it around. And the number one third-party app in the Mac App Store that's paid has always been this app called Magnet, which does exactly this, and there are a million other third-party solutions. Yes. And so I'm just thrilled that Apple's going to do some implementation of this natively to the platform because I think it's one of the things on whenever I use my Windows computer, I'm like, I wish I could do this on the thing. I just want to resize my Twitter client to be this big and I don't want to drag it with my hands. I just want to, you know, it's like a, it's basically a shortcut. You just drag it to the side of the screen and it snaps to the edge and it's yeah. like, they, and it resizes. They, they did they this thing in a recent macOS update where like when you, you approach the edge of another window, like you get like a little pushback from it, like it kind of mm-hmm. snaps in place, but they, they haven't gone as far as like changing the window sizes automatically beyond full screen modes. Um, so this, this sounds like they're, they're taking that a little bit further. <laughs> and if, if, like you say, Magnum is the most popular app, there are other examples. Um, those can be more powerful. Like you can have like grid layouts where you like customize what they do. Um, and there will always be more powerful third party tools. So I think they'll be fine. But in this yeah. case, it's, it's the classic, you know, Apple does a version of something built in. Um, that's fine for a lot of people. And if you want to do something more than that, then you can have another solution. Yeah. Um, it's attacking the 80 20 situation. Right. Yeah. Okay, so we just wrapped up our discussion on Project Sidecar, a future macOS feature that may let you send single apps to your iPad screen. But what if you could use your iPad screen today as a full wireless external touch display for as many apps as you want? That's what Lunar Display does. It's the only hardware solution that turns your iPad into a wireless second display for Mac. With Lunar Display, you can finally use your iPad as a super portable second display for your Mac with stunning image quality and virtually zero lag. Lunar sets up in seconds and instantly works over your existing Wi-Fi or even over USB as a backup when you don't have Wi-Fi. Lunar Display acts as a complete extension of your Mac with full support for external keyboards, Apple Pencil input, and touch interactions. It literally turns your iPad into a touchscreen display for your Mac. I've been trying out Lunar Display, and I have to say, the experience is really remarkable. Just connect the tiny adapter into your Mac over USB-A or USB-C, then launch the Lunar app on your iPad, and macOS really does treat your whole iPad screen as a dedicated external monitor with touch support. 
Luna Display is great on any iPad since the experience is full screen with no letterboxing, which makes Luna Display really shine on the latest iPad Pros with liquid retina displays that go corner to corner. And if you just want to put your iPad to work and extend your Mac desktop, or you want to use your iPad to expand your screen real estate from your MacBook while you're traveling, Luna Display is a fantastic way to unlock an invaluable new skill for your iPad and today. And Luna Display is giving Half Arrow listeners an exclusive deal on the product for a limited time with 10% off. Head to the show notes and get an exclusive 10% discount on Luna Display. Just go to www.lunadisplay.com and enter the promo code HAPPY at checkout. That's HAPPY. Thanks to Luna Display for sponsoring 95 Mac Happy Hour. And thanks for supporting this show by checking out Luna Display. And then there's the Find My Stuff uh, rumor, which is basically the unification of Find My iPhone and Find My Friends, which is interesting because to me they're very different apps and like who you share location with and then like finding your own devices. Plus you can see your family members' devices if you do family sharing. Um, and, and it sounds like that's going to be like one app in the future, which I, I think is probably inspired by the – um, family sharing aspect where like if, if you only share your location with people that you also share through family sharing, then it, it's already all in on my iPhone and you're not using find friends, which has like other unique features, like alert me when someone arrives or leaves a location. Um, but, but then the next angle of this is something hardware related, which probably motivates like why you'd have one app for all these things. So, so what's the story here? Yeah. So it seems like Apple is working on a, tag thing that you that you could just buy separately and put it on products that aren't apple products like you could just put it on your wallet for instance or you put it on your bag you just put it on your possessions kind of like the tile tags that we've seen around and the tile tags if something gets lost and other other users of the tile app are in nearby it can ping up and it can tell the original owner of the the item but obviously that predicates on a lot of people using tile apple obviously has the advantage of you know, 900 million iPhones in the world. So if they empower every phone with this ability, the tags become a lot more useful because yeah, you could just, any, any iPhone nearby can pick it up and then, oh, this item's lost. Oh, we found this item in here and it sends the location back to the original owner, all encrypted in private, for instance. Mm-hmm. and Or it just makes a sound and stuff. Like, I think from that perspective, it is sensible, but it does seem like a weird product kind of thing for apple to get into like it it's just seems like such a minor right? accessory yeah. yeah 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 it's weird it's interesting like of all the rambo reporting like this is like the most uh like, like out there kind of like left field thing um and it, but it's not so weird that you just can't envision it and imagine it like you, it's almost like um what if apple bought tile well you can kind of see it like they they have like like simple white little tags that you like put on stuff like on your key ring or like in your wallet or you know stick to something um you know they're not and i don't think they're environmentally great i don't think you can replace the battery i think you have to like replace the whole tile after uh usage but again that's like similar to apple devices um so <laughs> it's almost like apple bought tile without buying tile like they're just reproducing what tile does uh and in this case and there are more than just the like tile branded trackers like personal device trackers that have an app or a thing um, and if Apple is developing this and, and ends up shipping it, you know, anytime it's, it's, it is like, I, I agree with you. It's different. It's like, you, you can't make airport routers, but you can do this. It's very weird. I think um, it's a big jump to making one year. So maybe the tile like hardware thing is, 
in development in prototype stages and they're going to roll out something more uh, constrained this mm. time around maybe just rename the app unify if i my friends have found my iphone it's like an app called find and then add lost mode detection to for instance an apple watch right so if you leave your apple watch somewhere and it doesn't need internet to be able to ping up but you could just talk to you know some another iphone user finds it it pings and it goes back to the source or like your your airpods case for instance like re- keep it in the in the apple family at first and then if there clearly is demand then expand it to a you know an actual separate product line down the road yeah it's such a tricky thing too to solve is because it's like if if i've seen people say that they want alerts on their apple watch if their iphone goes out of range um not just like an, an indicator in control center uh and as an option like that's that could be appealing if you always have your iphone on you but if you ever want to leave your iphone behind you know, then, it, then it's got to be that, that you always get an alert if someone steals it or if you just leave it in the car to go to the gym. Um, so, and this is the same thing with trackers. Like if you put a physical tracker on your um, AirPods case because, you know, AirPods, if they're lost, it's really hard to, to track down the case because like, it can't make sound. Um, and, and it's like the, the weakest link in the Find My Devices camp because if it's dead, it's dead. If it's offline, it, it's, you know, it's, it's like the last paired location. So it's really obscure it's hard to, to benefit from that feature um but if you had an alert for every time you're out of range then you always have to take it with you and that works for things like car keys in your wallet maybe um but it's it's a challenge like there's, there's no one setting that you would have for always bother me if i'm out of range of all these things so um, yeah it, it sounds like a simple feature but when you actually think about it, there's so much like subtlety and complexity yeah. and a million different configuration options Apple would have to provide to not annoy people about it. Right. And, but, but I guess like if your AirPods case is out of range of all your devices, but it's in range of someone else's device that that's, it's able to not, like anonymously share the location sort of, then that would be practical, but it's, it is challenging though. Um, the, the weirdest thing is just like Apple selling new hardware that does this thing that you can do with other things. And it's not like a big business for them really. It's just like a, hardware to drive a feature you know and like what what is what would they envision you putting it on in or on but and, is, unless it's a service <laughs> yeah right it would be subscription service is what it would be i was gonna say this is the same year that apple was doing a, a, a credit card so it's not that not not that bizarre so 9.99 a month and you get one tile every two months or something <laughs> mm. <laughs> i mean essentially that's the way that the tile tile hardware works it's like yeah. once the hardware is done then you replace the hardware to keep using the service so uh, maybe it isn't so crazy after all. <laughs> yeah, we've we've cracked it. So we've teamed up with Wythings for nine hundred five Max Deal of the Month to offer a special discount on Wythings Sleek Wi-Fi Smart Scale for a limited time. The Body Plus Scale works with the Wythings HealthMate app on your iPhone and Apple Watch to automatically sync readings for not just weight but also body fat, water percentage, muscle, and bone mass and more directly to Apple's health app. You'll see the data displayed in real time on the scale on its 2.4 inch by 1.6 inch high contrast display, which also gives you an eight day trend of recent weigh-ins and an optional daily weather forecast. And the Body Plus scale features an incredibly sleek and high-end design with a large 12.8 inch square surface made from high strength tempered glass and a paint-free casing available in two colors. Wythings offers multi-user support for automatic recognition of up to eight users for families, which includes independent sync settings for weigh-in data 
And there's also a built-in baby mode and pregnancy tracker that you can turn on in the HealthMate app. I'm so happy to have Wything supporting Happy Hour because I've been a Wything scale owner for years. The HealthGate integration works great, so you can reliably weigh in on the scale and automatically save the data to Apple's Health app, which makes tracking weight loss super motivational. And I've even given Wything Smart Scales to family and friends and upgraded my own scale to the Body Plus model with my own money way before Wything was a sponsor. Wything's Body Plus is regularly sold for $99, but you can visit wythings.com slash happy hour or head to the show notes to get 20% off the Body Plus Wything Smart Scale from Wything's website or Amazon. Our thanks to Wything's for sponsoring this week, and our thanks to you for checking out Wything's and supporting the show. All right, Mayor, the next uh, big story this week. So we've, we've wrapped up the Rambo leaks so far. I think there will be more more after the show's out. Or even there will be more for what we can talk about next week. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. We can see them in the queue, just, just not on the site yet. Uh, the next thing is is this big story between Apple and Qualcomm that um, I, I think a pinpoint is, is always like kind of like, like what is the first story of the saga? I think it's January 2017 is, is the FTC uh, accuses Qualcomm of uh, monopolistic practices. And they think that, that they're charging Apple high fees for their modem chips because they can and that there's just not enough competition so that they're like abusing that relationship specifically for standard as essential patterns so mm. you you cannot make a 4g modem or a 5g modem without doing this thing which infringes on qualcomm patterns yeah. like qualcomm patterns about other stuff are, are completely off bait but the, the point with standard central patterns is they're supposed to be licensed for low and reasonable costs right and, and, and so there was an ftc yeah so yeah, in the u.s the there was an ftc complaint against Qualcomm that sort of favored Apple. Um, and then, like, soon after that, Apple sued Qualcomm for $1 billion in what they said was, like, overcharging Apple fees. Um, it was, like, part of their agreement, I guess, but, like, they felt like they were overcharged their, their fees, their royalty fees that they were paying to Qualcomm, and they, they thought that needed <laughs> to be changed and that they were owed some money there. Uh, and, and there was a whole arrangement where Apple and their suppliers we're paying Qualcomm, and so like App- Apple says to the suppliers, like stop paying Qualcomm. Apple will stop paying Qualcomm, and suppliers of Apple will stop paying Qualcomm. And so, like for several months, there were stories of Qualcomm is missing out on billions of dollars. Like I think the last number we had was like seven billion dollars. Um, and there was like there were like counter suits where Qualcomm sued Apple, and Qualcomm got iPhones banned in China, in Germany, throughout Europe, and like usually older models of iPhones that use Qualcomm modem chips, but then there were newer iPhones that used Intel. And this whole thing was just like, there was always talk of uh, from like Qualcomm CEOs and like, we, we, we would be happy to settle this. And Tim Cook was like, we're nowhere close to settling. We're not going to do that. <laughs> and there was a trial in January. There was a second trial happening this week where on Monday there was jury selection. And then today there was like opening statements and they were making like analogies to KFC and like the secret recipe for chicken and <laughs> and like through all of that it was just ramping up after two years really. And then there was this this uh, CNBC report that was just just a headline and like no detail that was sources say the two companies are, are have settled. And then moments later there was um, a group press release from Apple and Qualcomm saying yes we've dropped all litigation worldwide. We've settled. There's a payment from Apple to Qualcomm. And then we've, they've got a six-year agreement to work together. 
with an option to extend it, uh, I think two years or so. And then, uh, then that's the whole, that's the whole announcement, and that's it. And, and a supply agreement for chip. So licensing is six years, and then multi-year chip supply. So it, I mean, yeah, Apple, Apple goes from suing Qualcomm to saying we, we're we're committed to stay in business together. And then then there's like that's the whole announcement, and then there's like Apple's mission statement at the bottom, like since 1984, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's like a much longer <laughs> mission statement from Qualcomm, which is like the bulk of the press release, and it includes. Uh, a mention of 5G, like which is like probably the whole heart of the story. But they say like something like you know leading in 5G or something, and they say, they use the word cloudification, which is I don't think is really a word. Um, but but that's it. It's like the whole thing is over. There's nothing more that's going to happen in court around the world. It's similar to um, like the Samsung trials happened, but eventually there was just like it's totally done, wrapped up. And right now the Qualcomm thing is is done now. That's all there is to it. And then hours later. <laughs> Well, uh, shortly after that, there was a report from Nakai that that was like, I think it acknowledged that that the um, the litigation was dropped, but then it was like the, it was like, and our sources say that Apple will now use Qualcomm in twenty twenty for five G yeah. chips, and that was like, you know, that's that's the rumor. But then you also had out there like this this weeks long or like months long reporting that Apple was going to rely on Intel for for five G chips. As soon as twenty twenty, maybe they weren't doing so hot, so then there might be like a twenty twenty one thing. Which was kind of concerning, but also like 5G markets aren't really live yet. Like there are a select few in the US, but they're not, you know, they haven't penetrated yet. Yeah, no one, is, no one was expecting Apple to do a 5G iPhone this year because it's like, so nascent. Like and last it's so year would have been too soon, unless you, unless in the context of like keeping your iPhone for several years and it actually would be useful like in the, in the years, you know, after that. Um, this, I, I think like 2019 fall. Wouldn't be terrible because you you can actually find five G markets in the U S. Barely, yeah, barely. But like there are some, um, and it's not just like major cities. It's like they have like test markets. So, um, but then like next year, next year's iPhone twenty twenty is like next like fall winter. So it's it's by then I think five G will be more available in the U S. Twenty twenty one really pushing it. Not to mention competition from Android phones adopting five G either way too soon or on time. Um, but then, but yeah, then, like, like 2020 <laughs> felt like the perfect Apple playbook of, you know, we're not jumping on this thing immediately. It we'll felt like a LTE. While. Yeah, it felt yeah like just like 4G, exactly. Yeah. And then, but 2021 would be far too out, I feel like. Apple Especially because 2021 it. is practically 2022 when it comes to like, the iPhones, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it means September and beyond. Um, and, and, and then like hours later, Intel had an announcement that they are leaving the 5G market before they even enter it and that they see no pathway to profitability <laughs> and they, don't, they can they can make that a business they're going to like look at their existing 4g mark like modem chip business for phones and computers and that as in like saying like we might exit that too um and they say we're going to fulfill current commitments so, you know but but intel's got a new ceo like as of recently and it, it's it's all kind of happening at one time but it does seem like intel is who Apple was going to rely on for 5G chips for the iPhone. And it wasn't all roses there. And, you know, they had this big power play of like suing Qualcomm over two years ago before 5G was like really here yet. But like you could, you could imagine how it was going to go in two years. And then they, I, I don't think Apple really won on this one. <laughs> I think they, they like had to cave to the reality. And in the end of the day, like the consumer is, is who wins because now we'll have, the best modems in our iPhones for cellular and we'll have faster ones sooner than we might have had.
Yeah, Apple definitely ran out of time here. Like when they started this whole assault on Qualcomm, they clearly saw Intel as their backstop. Like while while the while the lawsuit goes on, we can just use Intel modems. They're you know eighty five percent as good as the Qualcomm ones, but they'll be all right. And then as times pass, they've lost faith in Intel's ability to deliver a five G modem on a timely basis. And probably about now is when they have to start like finalizing designs for next year's iPhone. So they're running out of time if they need to, you know, for, for, if they want 5G next year and it seems like Intel is not going to provide it. Well, no one else will provide it either because Qualcomm's basically got a monopoly on it at the moment. So they need to sell. Like yeah. they run out of time. There, I mean, there that. was a period between the litigation dropping and the settlement to say, and, and then Intel's announcement that you would think, well, now Apple's going to have two providers so they can have better rates. They can, argue, you know, they can do 5G whenever, the, you know, whenever Intel's ready and, and then they can include Qualcomm as, as an option and they can negotiate better rates because they've got two providers and they're not relying on just one. So things then go south, they've got a backup plan. Well, that didn't last <laughs> very long because now we're back to just one provider. It's, and it's Qualcomm who they were fighting <laughs> before. So yeah, it's... Apple has just gone from 100% exclusivity of Intel for the last three generations to now, for the foreseeable future, having 100% exclusivity on Qualcomm 5G chips because there is no competitor out yeah. that is and, anywhere and close. we don't know what the payment from Apple to Qualcomm was. I mean, the last figure that, that was said was owed was $7 billion. That doesn't seem like the kind of payment that you could like hide <laughs> or like obscure somewhere. Surely um, have to come upon a financial statement. Right, so, if it's that large on either Apple's or Qualcomm's, like it'll show up somewhere. Um, but they, yeah, they, they did disclose it, it at least. We don't know what it is, but it doesn't seem like Qualcomm came off too bad. Like maybe Apple has managed to negotiate rates down from their original complaint two years ago, and yeah. even in that interim period, Qualcomm actually reduced their. They basically put a cap on like a. So before it would be uncapped, and it'd just be like five percent of the of the device price, and then they introduced a cap where it was like five hundred dollars. So. Mm-hmm. You know, anything over five hundred dollars, you're not having to pay anymore. So you get essentially get a cap on on each on each phone sale. Right. And Apple used to pay Qualcomm seven dollars fifty per device. So maybe they've negotiated better better margin there, so it wasn't like completely for nothing. Right. But it clearly didn't go like Apple. There was a report over the, like a week ago where back in when Apple was originally negotiating the Qualcomm deal, like the, the original one, yeah. that Cook said he thought Apple deserved $1. He thought Qualcomm deserved $1.50 per unit, and they ended up paying $7.50. Right. And this I, was I think it's Steve pretty clear. When, when Cook was yeah. like COO, right? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that Qualcomm is not getting is getting more than $1, $1.50. Like, right. it, maybe Apple has negotiated better rates than the situation two years ago, but it, it definitely isn't to the point where it would have been if the lawsuit had got had finished and gone in Apple's favor. Yeah. And and so Intel sees that they've got no business future. And I, th- I think the CEO changes like based on like the CEO, like having um, some relationship with an employee. And so the CEO is like forced out basically. And, and then there was like this big long search for a new CEO and then they did, they couldn't find someone. So then I think that the new guy's name was Bob Swan. And um, like, there was like a, an interviewer who was like, I'm not, interested in the job and like the next week he had the job <laughs> so it's like it's it's a whole it's a whole like unplanned situation with with intel's leadership anyway um but you could you could see well now that this person who i think was like the, you know maybe like operations before says well now now i've got to make you know new decisions about running the company and we really don't see a reason to just make 5g chips for apple we're not doing great at it. like we're not it's not we're not good at this um, this is not what we're in business to do. It's a side project. 
And so, you know, tell yeah, Apple. I mean, I mean, that's not even like, that's kind of an open secret in that Intel never really made much money on its deal with Apple today. Like right. they had 100% exclusivity and they were like breaking even on that side of the business. Right. They basically, Intel got into modems because they wanted to diversi- diversify away from CPU design mm-hmm. and, you know, actually make their own chips. And by but the way, like Apple's looking at a future where they're not relying on, on Intel for that either. Like, yeah. Uh, and they basically, found a deal with Apple where they could guarantee that their um, production facilities would be fully stocked and basically only serve Apple. But, mm-hmm. you know, Apple's a, tight, Apple's a hard bargaining customer and so they basically negotiated a deal where Intel got all these millions and millions of units to produce, but they're basically making no money in each one. So they were basically invest, giving Apple the, the deal at the moment so they could build out the infrastructure to go heavier down the road. Yeah, I think today they've basically made very little money on apple's chips and with 5g clearly struggling they've you know decided to bail Hmm. and you could see like an alternative route where apple like if intel's not interested in this business they could sell it to apple maybe maybe that's hard to do maybe it's hard to approve the deal um or or (laughs) you know like but it's like here's what we've been working on the intel power portfolio potentially could be sold off to apple yeah yeah because the the other you know, even now with the Qualcomm deal, like it's just it's a it's a multi year deal, but it's not like forever. And you could still see Apple wanting to make their own modem chips, like in house, um, and and control that, and not not be reliant on a on a partner for that. And um, and there's rumors that they're de- designing one at the moment. Right, right, and and so, you know, this this seems like like a, like a band aid for right now. You know, and, and but even if it like even if they use Qualcomm for a long long time, like iPhone. But they made their own for watch or you know some other wearable because they they achieve some miniaturization that you don't get otherwise without like the super tight integration in the system of a chip. Then 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 maybe <laughs> you know the, the Intel thing is just like a, like a, a history like historical like road bump and you know but it doesn't mean much in the future and they don't need that business they can do their own thing anyway. Even um, if the Apple modem was ready to go, they'd still need a licensing agreement with Qualcomm for the standard essential patterns because mm-hmm. the whole mm-hmm. point is you couldn't make the modem work without infringing on those particular patents so right. they still need the licensing agreement uh but they wouldn't necessarily need chip supply clearly apple's modem project is under underway but it's not going to be done for three years or so so yeah. by the time that the current chip supply agreement runs out i assume apple will be ready to you know take up the plate with the, one of their own design but even then they'll still need you know the licensing agreement to be in place yeah which is the six years with the option to extend after two and stuff so they've, they've definitely got a longer timeline on that yeah, frankly, as a consumer, though, as like a customer of, of iPhones, I feel good about this. And I mean, for the reason of I'm okay with no 5G on the iPhone this year, I think, it, like, or, or last year even, like, as someone who who buys iPhones, like, regularly, um, if if you want to buy an iPhone, like, 2017 and, like, have it have the best features of, like, 2020, then and that's just not how, I guess, tech works. But um, But if you want to buy, like, an iPhone next year, in 2020 like like this fall you might expect 5g if you're looking at all the other android phones that have 5g like, like as of today it's still kind of like it, it's not mandatory by any means and like there are versions of like samsung phones that are, are going to have 5g they're announced but they're they're like alternatives to existing phones yeah they're um, like upgrade options right on the on the base models yeah it's like upgrade options in the future but before the next year's phones are out um, you know, so like, I think I think by the iPhone this fall, it, we'll start to approach that feeling of like iPhone doesn't have five G, but at least we've got the rumor of when it will have five G, and we'll we'll be kind of like relying on that rumor to feel good about the situation. But if it was like no five G this year, 
or next year, and we don't know about the next year, then it would feel like the LTE situation, but way worse. Like with LTE, with four, like true 4G, um, you could you could look at Android phones that supported 4G LTE, but they were really bad at battery life. Like it was, they were they had to be bigger by necessity, like thicker phones with bigger batteries. Like the um, I think HTC Thunderbolt was like one of the first ones, if not the first ones. And it it, it was notoriously bad at like staying alive. And, and so, um, you know, so so there's like a, a built-in time of like getting it right, getting it polished. You know? Yeah, of like the technology actually coming to maturity that Apple would accept. Right, even if the network's alive. Um, but I definitely feel good about like like feeling confident and telling other people like, you know, when when's 5G coming to the iPhone? Being able to say 2020 and know that it's Qualcomm behind it Versus saying maybe 2020, maybe 2021. We're kind of waiting for Intel to see if they can make it. <laughs> you know, it feels much better knowing that it's, that it's going to be someone who this is their core business and not you know a, an experiment. Yeah, and and when when in during the I, in, uh, iPhone seven period, Apple was dual sourcing from Qualcomm and Intel because they were just starting to phase Qualcomm out. Yeah, everyone wanted the Qualcomm version because <laughs> it was it performed better. So you know, it's not like Apple's. Uh, made a settlement with someone for an inferior product like Qualcomm's got this deal and forced Apple's hand for a reason you know right now they're offering the best and at least the iPhone's gonna be back on that train yeah yeah all right let's talk about LiDAR what's what's the story with Apple and LiDAR uh, this week yeah this is fun again the Apple car project continues to trek onwards in an unclear state of whether Apple's actually making a car whether they're just making the software whether they're just making a platform for other ones to license it's unclear the state but this report this week said that apple is actively talking with lidar suppliers and lidar is the kind of light-based radar system that you see on like the apple maps cars that go around and take pictures of everything those big crazy antennas that are like spinning around on top of these big yeah 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 Uh, so apple is apparently according to Reuters, in talks with existing uh makers to design a, a consumer model for a future car and it's also simultaneously working on its own design in-house. Hmm. And basically, when Apple ships, you know, say Apple does ship a self-driving car, they don't want they they know people aren't going to buy one that has these sticky-out white beats of plastic right. rotating around the ceiling, right? It's, the current systems are very like industrial and ugly. Yes, and Powerful, expensive, but not pretty. Yeah, yeah, and expensive. By the way, those those units can cost like sixty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand hmm. dollars. You know, it's just untenable for more than the carbon you know, either. Yeah. Yeah, and and like Tesla doesn't use LiDAR. All their cars just use um, normal cameras at the Mm -hmm. moment, partly because of the price problem. What Apple supposedly wants to do here is the the dream situation is make a a, a LiDAR system that is smaller, sleeker, and cheaper. And so basically they want a LiDAR system that doesn't have to poke out the ceiling of the the roof. They want it to integrate into the lines of the of the vehicle. Yeah. And and this is this is a Reuters exclusive, right? Like the Reuters reports this, so it's not yeah. a Chinese rumor. It's it's not, you know, supply chain stuff, but it's it's a Reuters report. So it's it's probably in the form of like an R and D project within Apple. So um it, it's reliable sourcing, but who knows if it'll ever see the light of day. It, it's like a step beyond a patent filing, I think. So. Yeah, and it does say that uh Apple has extremely high demands and they're looking for a revolutionary design and they're basically not happy with anything that the existing manufacturers have offered them to date. Yeah. It sounds like they want to kind of make a, a LADAR system using the same uh, fabrication as they make the A-chips, like mm-hmm. semiconductors kind of style fab, which should bring the price down from, you know, the tens of thousands of dollars to like sub a thousand yeah. and also be thinner, smaller and better. But again, this even if they are like 
you know, going full steam ahead with this. This is still a multi years away, even when it's ready to, you know, when they're ready to say yes, essentially. Yeah. So. yeah you see, I'm just, I'm still swear about the charging mat. So it's hard for me to take uh, <laughs> R&D stuff, you know, so seriously. But, the the yeah. Apple car, I mean, the Apple car project has definitely picked up steam again ever since they hired uh, that Doug Phil guy from Tesla last year. Mm-hmm. And they had the hiring of... Um, well, Ex-Apple employee Doug Phil, right? Yeah. yeah, who also had a stint at Tesla, yeah. right? And then he came yeah. back. And then they also hired in March someone from Tesla who worked on the electric drivetrain. Right. So it does seem like Apple's back in the hardware game on the, on the Apple car project height in front. Yeah, at least based on you know these reports. Yeah, I just I just remember being like uh, 2015 or so, being on a flight to uh, California for some event and reading. It was like breaking news on I think Wall Street Journal, and then it was like the report was running on CNBC on the TV screen on the plane, and it was like Apple Car 2020. <laughs> it was like Apple's targeting 2020 for the car, and you know five years out, four six years out, it's like. Okay, I can see that. Like based on all the rumors lately, like the, the group around it, and then and then we're getting close to twenty twenty now, and we're still kind of in a similar boat of like, what is this for? What is this R and D thing? Like? Yeah, and and you know the story, obviously, when in like twenty seventeen yeah. they shut it all down, they told the hardware people to go away, and then they focused yeah. on the autonomous driving alone, and mm-hmm. or the autonomous driving side of it is still going to be several. Like like Elon Musk has famously said that they they're going to have self driving. You know, full self driving out by the end of like the you year. Leave your, yeah, you leave your car and it goes and drives people around for you and makes you money. And then when you need your car, it comes back to you. That's, that's the, yeah, and, the big plan. Yeah. And I'm sure that'll happen eventually, but it's definitely not happening on the Elon Musk timescale. And so, you know, <laughs> Apple's bad in their time. They're, they're, they're working on it, mm-hmm. but it's definitely an R&D project in every sense of the word at the moment. Yeah. Something simpler that you can uh, use today is that uh, Sonos smart speakers uh, now work with Apple Music with voice control from Amazon Alexa. So for the first time, you can kind of treat your Sonos One and Sonos Beam smart speakers like a HomePod where you use voice control to not only like play and pause music and change the volume, but also say what you want it to play. (laughs) But you're not using Siri, using Alexa. Um, And the the thing about this is Sonos has supported Apple Music since like 2015, December. Um, And then Echo has supported Apple Music, Amazon Echo, since December 2018. So there's a three-year period there between um, like a couple years ago or last year, Sonos also got voice control through Alexa as like part of the Sonos One and then later the Sonos Beam. But you couldn't use all the things together. There was this limitation of like it, it needs more integration than, than what they've got. Well, as of today, you can you can now do all the things on the Sonos One and Sonos Beam speakers. You can use Alexa to um, ask it to play, you know, stations, artists in your library, Beats One, that kind of thing. Um, not just play pause, change volume, or what it worked with before, which is uh, I think Spotify and other, other services like that. So. Um, good news from Spotify, and then that you know, I guess there was only a four month period of exclusivity for Echo, and now that's over with, and so Sonos uh, is compatible. Uh, so, so it really is like a HomePod now. I mean, it's it's like a HomePod, but with a different voice assistant that can yeah. do other things too, more more things too. Um, the only thing it's, is, it's just so funny that yeah. that that exists now. When I still think of the original Phil Schiller slider when he introduced the HomePod, and it had <laughs> the the Echo and the Sonos, because it was it was it was uh, the, the tall cylinder. Echo that that was a smart speaker, and then it was the Sonos One or Sonos Play One that was not a voice assistant speaker. It was just a wireless speaker, like in multi rooms, and and it was like HomePod. It can do those two things, but in one speaker. And now you've got like literally like the next version of one of those that can do all of those things. Yeah, featuring Apple Music. Like, <laughs> yes, I get it. We've talked about this before when it came to the Echo. It's the same, you know, continuation of that, but it's yeah. still 
funny to think about. Yeah, yeah. So so that's a thing that you can do now. Um, and, and then also you can do all the other things that that, that Alexa can do. And, and the only, th- only thing is like there are some features that uh, Echo will get through Alexa from Amazon that you don't get on Sonos One immediately. Like I think um, the intercom feature where you make an announcement to, to your whole home of Echoes, that didn't work for Sonos for a while. I think it does now. Um, or like drop in where you say, you know, uh, audio call this specific speaker in this room or this person's home if it's like family. Um, that wasn't available in Sonos at first. And I think now it is. I think they're caught up on what you can do. Um, but then, but then of course, like Amazon already is adding new things to Echo that then come later to Sonos. So it's like, it's like the best Echo speaker in terms of like audio quality and everything, except it gets features like, you know, months later. And they require, um, like a chime noise, like a ding every time you interact with it. Whereas like the echoes and HomePod don't do that. They, they just rely on the light. Um, Sonos has the light too, but I think the light is just like the mic is active and, and listening for the buzzwords, but, but it's not listening to you. And so they rely on a noise instead of uh, a, a light up effect. And that's kind of really annoying. So, <laughs> but it, but it's for the sake of privacy. It's just, it's just a drawback of using Sonos for with, uh, Alexa. Um, let's wrap up with an iPhone rumor. So tell me about the iPhone 8 SE. This is another kind of wacky rumor to put on the pile. Uh, the idea is that Apple will introduce a new version, a new 4.7-inch iPhone in early 2020, and it will look like an iPhone 8, but have 128 gigs of storage, an A13 chip, so like the latest chip, but it, it would be iPhone 8-sized and seemingly retain the the forehead and chin with the touch id button so you kind of see it as an iphone se because you know we're back in the four a new four inch phone but if you actually think about it like the iphone 8 with forehead and chin is about the same size as the iphone 10 iphone 10s 5.8 inch anyway like it's not actually that much it's not actually very small so it's just cheaper right presuming this report that this uh rumor is accurate it's a it's a it's a price play, and probably for emerging markets like India and stuff like that, where the higher end iPhone is too expensive, they can bring in newer models that appeal to people. You can put and a, a new you know chip a lot of people and and a, and a lot of people and the whole like oh you know a, a new iPhone with Touch ID they just introduced an iPad Air and an iPad Mini with Touch ID again, so like they clearly had no rush to you know make it extinct. Yeah, we we think first in Touch ID too. It's not even like the fast stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it's it. If you put a newer chip and like maybe change the camera, even like a better single lens camera, then mm-hmm. it's perfectly fine. You're not getting, you're not going to fulfill like the, the people that want a small phone, but you, you do hit a price point, which, which, you know, that was probably what was most popular about the SE, like in its success is, is not that it's tiny. I think that, I think some people like tiny. I think for some people it was kind of a drawback, you know, um, I mean, if you're like making like a pros and cons list, I think for more people, it's a drawback that it's smaller than, than anything else. Um, so, but yeah, hitting a price point. Like, if you, what was the rumor, six fifty or so? I mean, that, that's like the old iPhone price. Um, it, it's it's not surprising that this would be a thing, at least. Yeah, so. and if you think of it as like the equivalent of the iPhone of the iPad Air, but for the iPhone, right? Yeah. Like, not the latest and greatest, but you know, modern spec, modern specs, older older design, cheaper price point. Yeah, and I think now, based on like what they did with the SC, you can kind of assume that they do this like it's like a one-off thing for a little while, and then maybe they discontinue it. Maybe they they update it in two or three years with like an, a a a bump uh, of the chip. But it seems like these are like not 
planned as like update every year kind of things but just like now we see a need for this and let's make that you know yeah the only thing i'd dispute here is the 650 price is probably wrong i assume it's gonna be cheaper than that because like the iphone 10r is 750 at the moment yeah and and se i think it was 350 yeah i mean it was like around 400 dollars, which was cheaper than 650 iphones were at the time so i mean if even if you like hit like 450 or 500 dollars, it's still a a value iphone like it's not a value phone but it's a value iphone so um if they did like 499 it'd make perfect sense to me 650 not really but yep i agree all right well that's the happy hour podcast for this week you can follow us on twitter i'm at apollo zach benjamin you are BZA Mayo. And also follow 9to5Mac on Twitter. You can also email us with feedback at happyhour at 9to5Mac.com. If you like the show, feel free to leave us a review in iTunes or recommend us an overcast. We appreciate that. And we'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.